This morning, we will be continuing our journey through the book of Nehemiah. For those who, you are, visit, who are visiting, we as a congregation have been working our way through the book of Nehemiah chapter by chapter over the last number of months. And now we've reached Nehemiah chapter 13. You'll be able to find that on page 565 of your pew Bible. Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and the gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. Now, those of you who might remember from previous chapters, Tobiah was one of the enemies of Nehemiah. He was an Ammonite official who had worked to undermine the work of the people of God. We'll continue in verse 6. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw out all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. And then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms. And I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shalemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe. And of the Levites, Padiah. And next to them was Hanan, son of Zachur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sheaves, and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do this? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. 
So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around my wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one, of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck them, some of them, and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not King Solomon of Israel sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them of everything pagan. I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and bringing the wood offerings and the first fruits at the appointed times. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. And as these are the closing words of the book, the words which have been the opening and closing of the entire book, it's appropriate that we deal with them today again. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, many great men and leaders in history have proclaimed grand speeches over the course of their careers. Every time that Parliament achieves something of note, the Prime Minister will step to the foreground and he will speak to all the people, telling them what exactly it is that they've accomplished. And the White House will have the President come to the foreground to inform the public. And at the end of their terms, leaders around the world will issue statements to the countries that they have governed, listing all of their achievements, listing all of their accomplishments. Even in the ancient world, this wasn't an unfamiliar event. Julius Caesar, after having made a quick and divisive, decisive victory, he came back with a report 
and he had it read off in Senate. And this report contained the words, Veni, Vidi, Vici, I came, I saw, and I conquered. King Nebuchadnezzar as well, when he was standing on the rooftop of his palace overlooking the entire city in, of Susa and its grandeur, said to himself, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my royal majesty? This is a common thing for people throughout history to laud their achievements, to laud their successes. We're now drawing to the end of our time in the book of Nehemiah. In this final chapter, we see Nehemiah's closing words. But interestingly enough, Nehemiah doesn't follow the pattern of these grand leaders, of these successful men. He doesn't focus on the fact that he brought all these people together, nor the fact that it was under his work that the walls were rebuilt. Nor does he focus on the fact that he was the one who arranged for the defenses of this beautiful city. No, instead there are only three things that he asks to be remembered for. And he doesn't even ask the people to remember him for them. There are three things that he asks God to remember him for. His provision for the house of God, his concern for the Sabbath day, and his consecration of the priesthood. With all of this before him, he says, remember me, O my God, for good. And with that statement, we're brought to a full circle in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah began with the words, remember your word, O Lord, calling on God's covenant name to be a protection for the people who come before God in repentance. And now he comes to the conclusion of his book in very similar words. And that's what we'll look at as we draw to the close of the book of Nehemiah today. We'll look at that under the theme, Our God Remembers. And we'll see, first of all, a people who forget again. We'll see, secondly, a longing for holiness expressed. And third, we'll see a cry for remembrance answered. As we enter into chapter 13 of Nehemiah, we run into a scene that is all too familiar in the history of Israel. Verse 4, we read, Now before this, this being a reference to Nehemiah uh, 13 verses 1 to 3, where they uh, separate the mixed multitude from Israel, this would be uh, before that separation happened, but after the covenant was made. Now before this, Elisha the priest, having the authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. Elisha would be the high priest that we ran across earlier in the book, the one who should have been the holiest of all the priests in his actions. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and the gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. 
Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. Nehemiah has been the political spearhead for the revival that happened under Ezra up to this point in time. And he, during this time, has to go back to the king to report. He has to make arrangements with regards to his duties at the royal court. If you remember, in Nehemiah chapter 2, he had set a specific period of time that he would be gone for. King Artaxerxes, he had appreciated his guidance, his wisdom over the course of his time and service to him. And he said, when are you going to come back? And he had said to him, I'll come back at such and such a day. He had set a specific date. That time was up, and now Nehemiah returned to court. However, Jerusalem was not far from his heart. He can't leave it behind now that he has invested so much into the city. It's difficult to go after an investment into people and into relationships. How can you possibly leave behind these people that you have so much love for? Yet, leave he must. And so he heads back to court to bring his report before King Artaxerxes and to deal with his position there. However, Nehemiah's longing to return to his home country was soon able to be turned into a reality. Being before, the king, being before King Artaxerxes, after having spent time in Jerusalem, he realizes that his time in Jerusalem will take up a lot more time in the future yet. And so he sets things into order in the court of the king, in the Persian court for a prolonged absence. And having done that, he then returns to Jerusalem as quickly as possible. But on returning to Jerusalem he makes a discovery that breaks his heart. Just imagine, he's brought the people in repentance before God. These people, many of them, have responded in a covenant. And yet, he comes back after a journey that wouldn't even have taken that long. And he sees everything in a state of disarray. The people, specifically Elisha the high priest, whom we met in chapter 3, but all who enabled him as well, had already forgotten their promise to the Lord their God. They had let intrigue and personal alliances take precedence over their defense of the temple, over God and his holiness. They've let his temple be desecrated by a man who has no business being there. Eliashib has given his ally Tobiah a room the size of a warehouse in the temple. And there's a good reason that it is the size of a warehouse because it actually was a warehouse. This was where they stored the offerings of the people that came in, the frankincense, the incense, the food for the Levites that were to serve in the temple. Where these provisions that were formerly there had been placed where they went, that's a mystery. But we can see that it clearly hadn't gone to the Levites. Because the Levites, on working there in the temple, had realized that their food was running out, that they had no more ways to support themselves, and so they had gone back to the fields. 
And they had begun to work there in order to provide for themselves and to provide for their families because nobody was taking care of them anymore. What a victory this must have felt like for Tobiah. After all of this time of threatening, of bribing, of cajoling people, of working his alliances, finally he has success. Finally he's undermining all the work of his enemy, Nehemiah. Not only was his longtime enemy, Nehemiah, out of the court, but now he had managed to insert himself into the very heart of Jerusalem. Now, as we saw before in previous chapters, the whole purpose of the city of Jerusalem was meant to be the center of worship, the beating heart of the nation. And if the city itself was the center of worship for the nation, then it makes it clear that the temple grounds themselves would be the very heart of that. That'd be the central location for everything. So the person who controlled the temple could direct the course of the nation. And that's exactly what Tobiah did. Having established himself in a spacious room of the temple, he's like a spider in the middle of a web, a giant web of intrigue. And he's making those who are allied to him dance like puppets on strings. Maybe as a cynical response to what their spiritual leaders were doing, or maybe for another reason, the people themselves have now gone astray as well. They've forgotten the passion and the zeal that they had not too long ago. They're like the seed in Christ's parable that sprang up in rocky soil, or the seed that was surrounded by weeds. Slowly, they're choked out and they die. When the sun came up, the grain withers. When the weeds spring up, they choke it out, and it dies. They forgot. This forgetfulness bled over to their observance of the Sabbath day as well. As a nation, even though they had promised not too long before in their covenant to keep that Sabbath day as separate, as holy. When the pagans from around came flooding into the city with their wares, they bought them. Finally, he also saw some men who didn't care about the holiness of the people of God. They were Jews who had married women from the surrounding nations. These were Jewish people who had forgotten their own heritage. They cared so little from where, about where they came from that half of their children were not only descended from foreign nations, but they didn't even speak the language of the people of Judah. The parents had not only forgotten to raise their children in the fear of the Lord, but they hadn't even bothered to teach the children the language of their people. Now, as Canadians here, many of you who are of Dutch descent, you might think, okay, what's the big deal about that? Why is this an issue? Well, this was different in a country that was so, uh, in a country that so deeply uh, was founded on the language. In the case of Jews, it wasn't simply them forgetting the language that they had 
spoken in the past. It wasn't simply the next generation not picking up on what their parents spoke. No, in a case where the language and the culture played such an important role in passing on the commands of God and passing on the history of his redemption of his people, the loss of language was symbolic of a much deeper problem. The parents had forgotten the importance of their God and they had put the very souls of their children in great danger because of it. With these various sins, with the leadership committing these sins, and with the people who were under their control, who were under their guidance, who needed to follow them, having lost sight, having become cynical, forgetting. With this, the Jews were repeating the very sins that had caused the downfall of Jerusalem in the past. Those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. And that's true today as well. Children who aren't thoroughly taught and modeled what it means to be a believer, well, that has an impact. It was true for the Jews of Nehemiah's day, and it's true today. To Nehemiah, it must have felt like the people there had thoroughly forgotten the Lord. They had thoroughly forgotten their history. They had thoroughly forgotten their heritage. They were like we so often tend to be, a people who forget. The forgetfulness of the people of Israel led to a longing for holiness on the part of Nehemiah. And this longing for holiness expressed itself in a very vivid way. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the priest Ezra, who are familiar with the book of Ezra, you may remember his response to the disrespect of the people for God. He was a contemporary of Nehemiah's. And uh, if you remember reading that, you remember how he sat down in tears. He pulled out hair, and he pulled out the hairs of his beard. He sat down appalled. His garments were torn. He expressed it in a very vivid way so that all who looked on him could see how distraught he was over the sins of the people. Nehemiah, on the other hand, takes a very different approach where Ezra's sorrow robs him of the ability to speak or even to stand. Nehemiah's great sorrow quickly turns to a holy fury and his holy fury turns into action. Just as his master, Jesus Christ, would purify the temple centuries later with a whip and overturning of money tables, Nehemiah comes into the temple courts with a vengeance, incensed at the desecration of God's holy temple. He doesn't blame the Levites who had left in order to work in the fields. No. He understands why they would have done that. He places the blame exactly where it belongs. So he storms into the room that Tobiah has taken over and he throws everything out into the street. But he doesn't stop there. He faces off against the rulers and challenges them. Why is the house of God forsaken? He causes the Levites to purify the storeroom and to return it to its proper use as a storage place for the provisions of those serving in the house of God. 
Nehemiah's longing for holiness, for the Lord's favor, leads him to very real action when it comes to maintaining the dwelling of the Lord among men. He wants to make sure that God's dwelling among men is not dealt with poorly. And he didn't come in as one who didn't have the authority to do so. Because as Jerusalem was in his care, it was his responsibility. He was the governor. So he was cleaning house in a place that was under his protection and under his care. He wants to make sure that God's dwelling among men is not dealt with poorly. He wants to show to God that there are still those among the people who treasure his presence in their midst. Following that, Nehemiah deals with the desecration of God's holy Sabbath day. For those of you who may think that his reaction to closing the gates and threatening personally these people who were at the gates is a bit severe, well, remember, he's living in a context. He very likely remembers the words of the prophet Jeremiah that had rung out over Judah in the not-too-distant past, warning them to bear no burden on the Sabbath day in relation to their work. Jeremiah had prophesied in the 27th verse of the 17th chapter of his book, If you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Suddenly, Nehemiah's response doesn't look so severe, does it, in light of that? They're under his responsibility, and he needs to take quick and decisive action to protect the people of God. Nehemiah's passion for the holiness of the day of the Lord would have come with great awareness of these consequences of desecration. But more than that, he longed for a day when Jeremiah's other words in this same chapter would be true. If they did hallow the Sabbath day, the Lord said, This city shall remain forever. And people shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. Oh, what a day that would be. He had expressed his desire to see this already earlier. Temple worship properly restored. Love for God and his people at the forefront of the minds of the people. Streams of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem with sacrifices of joy. That is what respect for the Sabbath day would bring to them. It would bear with it a recognition of the holiness of God, and it would result in joy and the worship of God. How Nehemiah longed for this day. But it was not to be. As it was, he recognized that this was not yet a reality. A day would come when the nations would join in perfect worship and enter into a more perfect rest. But it was not that day. And so he comes before the Lord. And instead he prays, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy.
Finally, the last thing that Nehemiah saw that really stood out was mixed marriages among the people. And not only mixed marriages, but marriages to nations that had been the fiercest enemies of Judah in the past. Among them were pagans who had deliberately tried to subvert the worship of God. We read in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 to 5, An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water out on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Peter of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Now you have to remember that these nations were related. They come from uh, way back. They were related to the nation of Israel. And so they should have been greeting their, the, these people with open arms. And yet they did not. Instead, hiring Balaam to curse them. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Now, certainly these people were allowed to marry into the people of God, into the people of Judah, if they became Jews. And we see this with Ruth the Moabitess. But as it stood, to marry these people who did not was to spit in the face of God. It was to reject his love and to embrace his enemies. And even the priesthood was tainted by this. People who should know better. People who should be giving, giving an example to those in their care by their walk of life. And this, above all, flabbergasts Nehemiah the most. And he lets them feel it. He takes spiritual discipline to a whole new level. He contends with them, it says. He contends with them. The word in the Hebrew here speaks about reasoned arguments, bringing forth history, bringing forth the reasons that God had put in place. And you can already see this where it's used previously in the chapter with contending uh, in Verse 17, then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? And he proceeds to list all kinds of reasons logically why they shouldn't profane the Sabbath day. Well, it's the same idea. He contends with them. He pulls out their hair, publicly marking them as men worthy of shame in the community. This was something that was a more common tool for shaming. You might remember this from the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel 10, where David's envoys are sent out and they're sent back with half their beards shaved off and half their tunics cut off. It's a mark of public shame. Now he's not just abusing them. There's reason behind what he does. He berates them for arranging these marriages for personal gain because that would have been why they arranged them to do that in that society. And he makes them swear an oath never to do it again. In this third case too, the marriage of foreigners, we see that Nehemiah's desire was for purity. With his purification of the temple, his call to sanctify the Sabbath day, and his call for the people to keep themselves as separate, as a holy nation before God. His desire was for a holy people who lived in community with a holy God. He had a longing for holiness, and he desired to maintain this before God. We see this very same passion. 
this very same desire in our Lord Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus also faced the people that would not listen. He faced the people that time and time again rejected not only the heart of the commands of God, but they rejected Christ himself. It can get tempting to get frustrated time and time again with the sinfulness of the people around you. There is no one who had more reason to get frustrated for his people's lack of holiness than Jesus Christ. And because his standard is of his standard is perfection, he has every right to get frustrated, even with you. Certainly he made a statement when it was necessary. He cleared out the temple courts of swindlers and money changers with a whip. And behind him followed the word, zeal for your house consumes me. But at the same time, he had a deep compassion for this unholy people. He had a love that was so great that he was willing to suffer and die for the purification of this people. Becoming for them their righteousness, their holiness, and their redemption. And in him we find the answer to Nehemiah's prayer. The answer to Nehemiah's call, remember me, O Lord. We find the answer to Nehemiah's desire for holiness. The answer to a people who are so deeply ingrained with unholiness that the moment oversight is gone, they return back to it. In Jesus Christ, we find that answer. With those words and with the final chapter, we come to a full circle in the book of Nehemiah. As it began with a prayer for God to remember, so also it ends. Remember us, O Lord, for the sake of your word, he said at the beginning. These were the words of a repentant man who came before the Lord asking for forgiveness on behalf of the people. Remember me, O my God, he says now. And these words need to be taken in context with those words at the beginning. Otherwise, it would be the response of a prideful man. A man who said, I've given up on these people. Remember me personally. No, it's in light of the repentance that he expressed earlier. Remember me, oh my God, he now prays. He had prayed a prayer of national and personal repentance at the beginning of the book. And his actions throughout the course of the book But also now in this final chapter, they have shown proof of his repentance. He had come before the Lord asking for his mercy and his blessing on the returned people. And he had received it. He had the opportunity to deal with those who were under his care. And wherever he had the authority to work, he worked to transform that in every aspect of his life before the Lord. The book of Nehemiah shows how much a regular believer committed to a life of prayer, God's word, and active obedience can do, but it also shows how little he can do. As we've seen throughout the book of Nehemiah, at the end of the day, it's not his personal strength that led the people through. At the end of the day, this book is about God and his glory, and his prayer reflects that. He prays that God would remember his good deeds in verse 14 but not because of their goodness, 
And that's an important note. Instead, Nehemiah asks that they might not be wiped out. That the good that he has done in these various aspects of his life might last. That God's glory might shine through. Again, he asks God to remember that he fought to preserve the holiness of the Sabbath day, but not because of his personal goodness. Rather, it's a reflection of that repentance that he had expressed at the beginning of the book. And in the very last verse, he prays that God may remember him for good. That final statement is a request that when the day of judgment comes, God may remember the fruit of his faith and the obedience that flowed from his repentance. The fruit of his faith in light of his repentance and the obedience that flowed from his asking of forgiveness. Now Nehemiah doesn't get an answer. The final words of this book are a cry for God to remember. And just sitting there, oh my God, please remember me. And reading the final chapter of Nehemiah can be a depressing way to end the book. It's just the rebellion of a people, right? Is it disappointing or depressing for you after all this time we spent in the book of Nehemiah? We are a people who forget God's holiness. And this final chapter deals with a people who does the same. Perhaps you see a reflection of yourself, your own heart, in the actions of these people. Does it trouble you? Do you have a deep longing for holiness? Do you have a desire for God to remember you for good? Do you come in repentance before God, confessing your sin and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Does your heart still weigh you down? If your heart still weighs you down in this, remember the words of Nehemiah at the end of this book. Remember me, oh my God, for good. And remember that God has remembered for good. God has remembered for good because he caused Nehemiah's life, Nehemiah's repentance, and Nehemiah's action to be recorded in Scripture. God preserved this cry of remembrance throughout the ages as an example to us, but also as a reflection of his goodness and his mercy. Because he had an answer to that cry in store that would come centuries later. Centuries later, Jesus Christ came as the one who purified this unholy people. He was the fulfillment of the declaration that God would choose for himself a people. He would not choose them on the basis of what they had done, but on the basis of his good pleasure. Through Christ, God chose a royal priesthood, not an imperfect one with a high priest who is defiled by sin, but a perfected one, washed and purified in Christ's blood, one which is made up of each and every believer. And through Christ, God chose a holy nation. God's people have been set apart. This is the answer. God's people are a people set apart, spanning the ages and the nations. They are chosen from every tongue and tribe and language and people. And as part of that people today, you have a purpose in this world. As we read in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen nation a royal priesthood, 
a holy generation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but who are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but who have now obtained mercy. God answered Nehemiah's prayer. In Christ, he responded to Nehemiah's call. Yes, the people were hard-hearted. Yes, they were sinful. But still, in his mercy, God chose to work out his plan of salvation through them. And through Christ, he creates a holy people, a people whose sole purpose will one day be to gather together in the holy city, to join in eternal worship, the heavenly Jerusalem, and on the new earth, to join in eternal worship of our great and holy God. Amen.